But one thing, it, as I was preparing for this, I called to mind was just these weddings. <laughs> uh, I, I, you've got Luke and Maddie. Where's Maddie? Um, she's, she's getting married to you next January. Um, and Kale and, um, where's Kale? Kale and Lexi are getting married next January. And Lori and Josh just got married. And Jesse and Michelle are just getting married. And one of the things like I, I love about weddings and thinking about weddings is just the reality of words. Words. And w- what I mean is um, a wedding is one of the most powerful things that ever happens like on the earth. And, and it's all like done by words. Like a, a pastor or a celebrant walks into a room with two people who in God's sight are two different people, two individual lives, two separate entities. And they come before that pastor or reverend or celebrant or whatever person is entrusted with it. And that celebrant says words. He says words. And they say words. That's all that happens, words. And out of that time of words... And he comes and they say these vows. And, and then he says, I got to say it uh, on Wednesday. Can we put that picture up, Brando? There they are, Josh and Lori. I just said some words. And, and I said, by the power invested in me, by the Lord Jesus Christ in the state of Maryland, I now pronounce you man and wife. And boom, the Holy Spirit... <laughs> takes those words and he takes those vows they've made and he says, it's done. God joins together these two people. He uses my words, he uses their words or the celebrant's words. And those two people who walked in, two individual people, in God's sight, so in truth that we can't see, they are one flesh. They're one body, one person together now. And that just happens through words. When you think about the scriptures, the most important things happen through words. They happen through this decision that's expressed. You know, in the beginning, God spoke, and it was so. Genesis 1, Psalm 33 tells us, the Lord commanded, and it came to be. He spoke, and it stood firm. I don't think God has vocal cords, but I think the intended idea, at least, is God made a conscious decision that he expressed precisely, and he expressed it. He didn't just just think it, Wouldn't it be great if, no, God commanded and he spoke. He took ideas and thoughts and he he consolidated them in this decision point and said this, not that, not that, this. And it was so. Words are incredible. And he's given us that gift to take information, thoughts, emotions, will, fear, hopes, and to put them all together into words. And with words, we create. With words... He saves. Jesus is the word of God. He is the intended, precise expression of who God is. Not this type of God, not this type of God, this God, he is God, and he tells Jesus to us. He sends him into the world, and we see him, we understand him precisely. So words take all this amorphous chaos and disorder, and they bring order to it. You can't live without words. You can't know one another without words. Words are incredible. They're an incredible gift. It's just like air. We presume on it all the time. It's always in front. It's a miracle to have words. That I'm up here and I, just, I don't have to just go for 40 minutes. But I can say 
these ideas, they, they, they get carried on sound waves, and they get into your brain, and you don't just hear sound waves. You hear ideas and truth. Isn't that crazy? Is anybody getting like the craziness of that miracle of words? It's a, it's a gift. And the gospel comes in what? It comes in words. And through words that we hear, that God's spirit hovers over, he saves this message. The gospel is words. God saves through words. He makes the world through words. He makes marriages through words. And you guys know, and I know, I know that words have the power Apart from those categories, they have the power to, to do great, great good between people. And they have the power to do great, great destruction between people. And we've all experienced it. We've all participated in doing good with our words. We've all participated in doing destructive things with our words. So I want to talk about that a little bit today. And, and for frame of reference or for starting point, I, I, I want to look at this passage in Ephesians 4. And then we're going to go through three other passages. And I'll tell you what they are so we can scoot to our Bibles if you need to. But the, the, the place, the starting point I want to take off from is Ephesians 4. And Paul is picking up this theme of the power of words. To do harm to do good. In Ephesians 4, 29, he gives this commandment. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul spent most of the last three chapters telling this church about the work of God and their redemption. He's used words to labor deeply and repeatedly to build into them and to grow them and to nurture them with the facts of their election and their forgiveness and their justification and their adoption into God's family with the fact of their newness as new creatures in Christ. He's just, chapters one through three is just Paul pouring out words of grace and goodness and incredible news about who they are in Jesus, free from the dominion of sin, made new in Christ as a gift of his grace. And now he takes those three chapters and he says, now here's what I want you to do with all this grace. And he uses more words. And the first thing, well, one of the first things he talks about in, in chapter four is this, or in this letter when he moves to application is this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So Paul says here, after pouring grace on them, give grace to each other with your words. And he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupt is a word that in the New Testament, it refers to, almost always it refers to rottenness of fruit. As in a a bad tree produces rotten fruit. So it can mean putrid, rancid, rotten. And the corruption that Paul has in view is not merely in the words that are spoken, 
like if I say corrupt words, but in what happens to the hearer as well, my rotten words make your heart rotten with the rottenness of my words. It's like if I see a banana with fruit flies around it, I I can surmise two things. Those little guys have laid their eggs in that banana. They have put rotten things out of themselves into the banana. And I know that in a few hours or in a few in a few days, every piece of fruit in that kitchen is going to be home to those, cu- those little babies and their cousins. And it's just, everything's been corrupted by these fruit flies and what came out of them has now led to corruption everywhere. Corrupting words corrupt the speaker and the hearer, Paul is saying. They, they well up in the speaker's heart and they well up in the hearer's ears and their heart to give a corruption. Proverbs 18, 18 says it well. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's innermost parts. But corrupting words aren't limited to slander and gossip. They can be words that maybe you say to the person themselves, but they they condemn or they leave hopeless. They can be words that they just confuse and they discourage. Or maybe they're false words. They're words that flatter and they give a false hope or a false stimulation that's going to produce bad fruit. And Paul says about those things, he says, let there be none, not, not a little. He says, never, ever let corrupt speech come out of your mouth. If it rises up in your heart, he, he would say, plead with God like David. David in, in the Psalms says, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil so that I take part in wicked deeds. I don't know that I regret anything in my life more than words. Like if I look back over, I think there's, there's a couple of things I can look back and say those actions, if I could just take back those actions. But I feel a lot more aware of words that I wish I could take back. Um, so Paul knows that. He knows that's in our hearts. He knows that's at work. And he's saying, fight that. But then he says, here's what you do do. Don't just don't do that. Do this. God never leaves us in Scripture with just the negative a Christian doesn't just put off the old man. He's to put on the new man. And so Paul says, don't do this, corrupting words. But then he says, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He says, build up. The word, this word literally means a building or a structure. We're the temple of God. And Paul is telling us to use our words to strengthen, to raise each other, to raise that temple that we are together higher and higher. He says, do it as fits the occasion. We'll come back to this in a moment. But, but recognize what he's saying is there's no one-size-fits-all approach to our words. Our focus should not simply be, don't say something not bad and say something generally good. <laughs> you know, our, our focus should be words that consider the best way to speak to real people in real specific circumstances. All around us are people in varying circumstances and in particular seasons of blessing or trial, or temptation, and our words are to be tailored for them as fits the occasion that they're in. 
Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Obvious general idea is make your words apt to fit the occasion. And then the motive is to give grace. Paul Tripp writes about this, how how easy it is to have our words shaped by no higher purpose than our own pleasure. We need to recognize how often we speak as if we were totally unaware of the Lord, his work and his call to be instruments of grace. Preparing for this message was like watching a home movie of my life over the last, you know, few years. Um, and, and not just watching things that I, I, I say or said that I wish I could stuff back in, but how much I speak sometimes. I've talked to some of you guys about this. I have a, you know, part of it's preaching. You know, I think I'm geared to want to express ideas and truth. Um, it can also be a reaction to nervousness or fear. But it's a gift to me you know, to know how to just shut up <laughs> and listen and take in. Um, it's a battle for me. And, and so what Paul is saying is, think about why you're talking. Think about why you're saying these words. What are you trying to do? And he says, what you, wanted to, what you want to do is give grace. Build people up. Make it fit the occasion. He says, give grace with your words, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is really interesting because this is the same word the Bible uses to describe God's grace. It's not, it's not a different word. Give grace, give gift. Give gift. Make it for that person. The implication is huge. Though we're not the source of, we're not the ultimate source of God's grace, but made new in Christ and filled with his spirit, we can be and are a real means of God's supernatural grace to others. So God has works. He's created advanced for you to walk in and a ton of those works are words. So how do we know what words encourage? How do we know what words to build up with? can't be exhaustive, right? This is a lifelong journey of trying to understand how to speak and not speak. But there are three big categories I just want to briefly touch on today. Like three brief big categories to think, you know, here's this category, here's this category, here's this category. And the Bible is often calling us to one of these three categories. There's words that just point to God's faithfulness. There's words that comfort in suffering. And there's words that exhort us to stay with Jesus. Words that point to God's faithfulness, call us to just point each other towards Jesus and his goodness and his faithfulness. Words that call us to comfort one another in our suffering and our grieving and our trials and our pain. And words that we're called to bring to one another to exhort one another to stay with Jesus and not give up on him. So first, words that build by pointing to God's faithfulness. And I, I think this is almost always apt. Almost always apt, if, if you know, maybe with the exception of section two. But, but as children of God, we have God's promise and guarantee that, that he is in us and that he is working in us to will and to do his purpose 
and that he will complete the work in us. And to be able to say that to each other is so powerful and so neglected in my own heart. You know, I'm looking at my wife right there. We've talked about this um, a lot this year. We've been talking to a counselor from CCF and he's been walking us through, you know, this one aspect of just encouragement towards one another. Because I'm often much more aware of sin at work in me and at work in my heart and at work in my wife and my children. I'm much more often aware of guilt and condemnation and weariness in me than than I am of the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm often more aware of how I'm failing than of how patient God is, how faithfully he's changing and growing us. And I think I project that. You know, I can project that onto my family. And so one of the most important overlooked ways that, that I'm grappling with as I look at these texts is how can we encourage and build up with our words that point out to each other that God is at work and that God will be faithful? Like, yes, there's all kinds of messes around and all kinds of problems around, and, but, but into that, we can, we can get to that. We can talk about that. But into that place, we can, we can also say, God's at work in you and he's gonna be faithful to you. And if, if you read the Apostle Paul carefully, he is abundantly he flourishes and excels at pointing out God's faithfulness to his fellow believers. He does this everywhere, affectionately, in a way that served them by, by, by pointing them not to themselves and their progress, their performance primarily, but to God's faithfulness over them. One of the most powerful examples of this is found in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, at the beginning of this letter, astonishing stuff, given the, the whole context of the letter. It's like, how can you, you know, if you know Corinthians, you know that church, it's like, how do you say that when you're going to have to say all this, right? What my point is, if you understand what's going on in Corinth, there are arrogant, proud people creating divisions among them, different groups following their favorite leaders, opposed to others. There's lawsuits between members of the same church, There's immorality involving temple worship prostitution. There's immorality between family members. There's incest. Paul's got to tell him to kick a guy out of the church because he's sleeping with his mother or his stepmother. There's refusal by the church at large to rebuke this because they're like, it's everything's, you know, kind of everything's fine. Like, don't judge him. It might be kind of a... uh, a sense of enlightened sexual morality. And Paul's like, no, this is wrong. What are you doing? There's drunkenness at church gatherings. There's abuses of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's oppression of the poor. They're welcoming slander against Paul and dishonoring him. The church has a lot of big problems. And Paul is going to address all of them. Like he's not going to ignore them. He's not going to pretend they're not there. But listen to how he starts this letter. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ and then here's the explosion of grace who will sustain you to the end guiltless 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul knew this church. He knew they were genuinely converted. And he knew that because of that, he was going to be faithful to them. And before he brings any, before he takes off the gloves about many of these issues, which he does take off gloves, he gives them a huge hug. And he says, God has got you and he's going to be faithful to you. He didn't let their sins overrule their identity in Christ or their destiny in Christ. He made God's grace in them and God's faithfulness to them dictate his attitude toward them. And this empowered him to bring great encouragement to them, even though they were struggling deeply. And it empowered him, as the letter goes on, to bring great correction to them. Because he could say, you know where I'm coming from here. I love you and I see God at work in you. He's going to be faithful to you. So come on. Get away from that stuff. So if Paul could find grace in these Christians, can I give grace to my wife and my kids? Can we give grace to one another? Can we start where Paul does? If we know one another as believers in Christ who have been born again through the gospel, We can give the greatest encouragement possible to someone. We can say to them, God has started a work in you and wherever you are in it, he is going to complete it. We can quote quote Paul's words, Christ will sustain you to the end. I know we're tempted by money. I know we're tempted by what's happening with persecution and this part of the world and my kids are scared about that. I know that they're te- you know, my, we're tempted by, are we going to give in to um, you know, the state forcing us to do this or that? Or it's, you know, we're, we're looking down the barrel of a lot of fears as Christians and, and to be able to grab one another by the shoulders and say, God will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's faithful I've been helped in my life by all kinds of advice and cautions. I've been helped by warnings. I've been helped by corrections and rebukes that I've needed. I've been helped by the discipline of the Lord that I've needed. But what my soul craves and longs to hear more than anything else and needs to hear, no matter what else is being said, is Christ will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. You're not guiltless in your experience. You're not, you weren't guiltless yesterday, today, or tomorrow in your practice. But his blood is covering all of that. And he will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I need to hear this. And everything else that I'm hearing that's important to hear, I need to hear that. That's what my wife needs to hear. It's what my kids need to hear as they come to Jesus. It's what you and I need to say to each other. 
And I'll just tell you guys, I don't think I do this enough. And you can review your own record, but I just want to go on the record. I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm doing this enough. So when was the last time you just took your fellow brother or sister in the eye in the middle of a trial or a question or a struggle that they're having or you're having even with them maybe and said to them, God will not leave you. He is at work. Don't give them, I'm not talking about false hope. If they don't know Jesus, they don't know the first thing about Christ. They've never come to Christ or confessed the gospel. I'm not saying just go around saying, God loves you, everything's gonna be fine. No, you need to bring the gospel to them as Luke is talking about. But if you have, are in a community of people who are confessing Christ as we are as members of this church, who are confessing Christ as our Lord, who know the gospel, that's why we make that the centerpiece of our membership process is, do you know the gospel and we preach the gospel and we accept and affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ? We've repented of our sins. We've said, Lord, forgive me for my sins. We agreed with him about it and I'm trusting your blood, Jesus. If we've done all that, then we have this incredible privilege to just say that to each other again and again and again. He will be faithful to you. He started a work in you. He's not leaving you. He's not going to give up on you. That's my first point. I think it's my best point today. <laughs> Maybe my, my most appropriate for you, but I, I feel that, the weight of that, you know, for me and for needing to give that to you. Number two, words that bring, words that build are words that bring comfort and suffering. Words that build are words that bring comfort and suffering. You could turn to 2 Corinthians 1 if you're flipping around in your scriptures or you want to pull it up on your phone. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 4. Uh, here is what Paul says here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Just a quick aside, I don't understand. Like, praise God that, that I can say this, that hopefully you can say this. Like, rhetorically speaking, I know it happens, but rhetorically speaking, I just want to say, how can anybody look at a paragraph like this and not believe the gospel? Like, if you really study this and look at this and recognize the wisdom and the clarity and the counsel and the beauty of these words... God knows we are an afflicted people. We are afflicted. We are afflicted with broken relationships, broken marriages, broken hearts. We are afflicted with disease and death. We are afflicted with doubt and anxiety. We are afflicted by other sins against us and the consequences of our own sins. We are afflicted. That's, what, that's just a category of who we are. We're afflicted. So I want to give you a 
called it attend in verse 4, what Paul says here. He says, God comforts us in all our affliction. Whatever affliction, God's heart is ultimately that we would be comforted. And we think it's, okay, sure, God wants to comfort us in cancer and losing our parents. But God even wants to comfort you in the disaster that your own sins have caused you. And though he might rebuke you in one place, in a sequence of, of, of helping you, he wants to ultimately comfort you. And David Paulison says that God speaks a unique way to suffering. When we read the scriptures, we want to pay attention to the unique way that God speaks to suffering. That he doesn't speak to rebuke or correction. He says, the Bible speaks to fear and discouragement as much as it speaks to anger and bitterness and using people, manipulating and bullying. Right? There's the category of fear and discouragement. There's also the category of bitterness and anger. God speaks to both. But then he says, but, it's, but, but it, the Bible, God's voice, speaks in a very different way, right? In the one, you're, you're aiming for decisive statements of right and wrong and true and false, and you have got to choose, God's saying. But then he says, the other is a lot slower and messier in a way. And, and, and he sees, he, he kind of advises us as counselors, taking cues from God in the way God speaks to David in the Psalms. And the way Paul speaks here to the, Corinthian, or to the Corinthians of their afflictions. He says, you're trying to encourage and console and comfort. And, and the truth that we bring in encouragement has much more to do with the witness of God. In other words, as opposed to the rebuke of God, as opposed to the correction of God. It has much more to do with the witness of God. Paulson goes on to say, to say to someone, he is with us. You are not alone. You are not alone. I know it is hard. I know you hurt. I know it is confusing. I know you feel overwhelmed. I am with you. God is with us. He will see us through. It doesn't mean there's not a time to gently challenge the anxious, the doubting. Oh, man. But Paulison is right. There's a different tone and speed needed, even if we do that. Like a call to believe God can be brought in a self-righteous, disgusted manner. I've done that before. Like, why don't you just need to believe in God? Or it can be brought in a gentle and patient manner. I don't know if this is good or bad. You remember the story about Martin Luther's wife? He was, I talked about this last week, he would be terribly depressed, struggle with assurance. Does God even know me? Um, and he would just go deep dive into discouragement, depression. This is post-Reformation. This is post-Saved by Grace. Luther was just crushed by recurring depression and doubt. His whole life, he struggled. And there, there's a story about what his wife did one time. She, she, in the middle of one of these spells, she just put a black gown on. And he came home and he's like, why are you wearing black? And she said, because God is dead. Don't you know, Martin? I mean, it's all you talk about. He must have forgotten you. He, you know, he, he couldn't have forgotten you. He couldn't have given up on his grace. He promised to be faithful to you. So he must be dead. 
because you don't, you know, you're full of doubt and fear and, and unbelief and questioning God's faith. Am I saved? Is God being faithful? Well, he just must have died then. Because I know he, he would have been faithful. I mean, I know he would have been faithful to the end to you. But since you're just filled, I don't know that's the best take. It's a very funny story, you know, that she's just trying to gently, teasingly rebuke him to say, oh, Martin, I guess God is dead. I guess his blood's insufficient for you because he died. <laughs> his faithfulness, it would have been great if he'd sustained you to the end and covered all your sins. But now he's dead, so you're doomed, right? <laughs> wow, what a woman. <clears throat> So, you know, it's challenging when you live with somebody like that, though. I have a lot of sympathy for her. Not that I live, my wife probably has sympathy with her. <laughs> I'm the Martin Luther in the home. But I, I mean in terms of that kind of thinking, you know. Um, but, but there's a certain kind of slowness we need to bring to these situations when people are really crushed. And if I could just bring a unique word about the needs of those who have suffered deeply, having lost both my parents, I, I read these, these ideas of mourn with those who mourn in a different light than I might have before. Because the kind of comfort God brings in those moments, it looks really different. It's hard to sometimes think you could even call it comfort. When someone's really, really grieving, it may not be what you would knee-jerk as comfort. You know, um, I remember when my mom passed away, I was not prepared for it at all. It was absolutely sudden. And people would bring all these encouragements to me. Look to the Lord. His light will guide you. He will never fail you. Like text me these psalms that were beautiful. And they meant so well. They were really kind. And it just hit me like, like, uh, like raindrops on a wall you know, or on a, on a sidewalk. This could not permeate. Could not permeate. I didn't need, I didn't understand it, but I didn't need that kind of stuff. I didn't need that kind of comfort. Like, God won't give up on, you know, he's still with you. It was like raindrops on a concrete block. Just couldn't get through. <clears throat> when you read Job, there's an amazing thing that happens at the beginning. It might be the only good thing Job's friends did when they, was when they first ran into him. When they first came to him, he was an afflicted mess. All his kids were dead. I think his wife had left him. All his property was burned. His body was racked with disease. He was a festering byword. It was just a gross situation, personally. And of course, haunting, unbelievable tragedy. The Bible says that when they first got to him, they went with him and they sat with him in silence for a week. They just sat there. They didn't say anything for a week. They probably should have kept that going. <laughs> I think there's often a first season of devastating grief where the only comfort is simply the company of friends who try to advise very little and they simply just need they simply just let you know that they're there and they care. And unless the sufferer asks, particularly great grief, suffering, I would suggest that we be so careful to run into their suffering with encouragement or with doctrine. There's a place for that, absolutely. But I have found that in deep suffering in myself and in others, it's very often it's not a time for answers. And it may not even be a time for much scripture. It's certainly not a time to readjust or correct them in their attitudes. It's a time to let them be devastated. And as far as you can, be devastated with them. It's a time for prayers and hugging and crying. 
there initially just might not be much else you can do to serve them, but let, you know, let them know you love them and that you're sad and you're available. But over time, you'll, you'll sense they'll be ready for more in time. <clears throat> and notice in verse four, what Paul says, it's just so, pressed, it's just so astute here too. He says above that, that our afflictions, he says in verse four, he, that God comforts us in our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And isn't it true that when you're afflicted with something, one of the greatest means of grace is to be able to find those people who know what it's like and be with them and hear from them and get a hug from them or a word from them. There's nothing like that, right? I remember, again, coming back to my mom, it's probably the biggest suffering I've gone through in a tragedy sense, not my own, you know, whatever. It was just, it was really hard. Um, But Paul Roberts came to me. He was a guy in our church, wonderful guy in 2013. And he, my mom died. He came up to me and he didn't say anything. If you knew Paul, he was like uh, a, he was a very tough-looking guy, like a Chuck Norris kind of look. And do any of you guys know Paul Roberts? Yeah, and he just had this tough guy way about him. And like, he looked up to me after church, and I walk out of the uh, meeting, and it's the first time I'm back since mom died, and he just looks at me. And he just grabs me, and he hugs me, like a huge bear hug. And he like, almost like he mushes his cheek into my cheek. And he just said, No one like mom. No one like mom. And I knew he knew. I never forgot that. Greatest thing, greatest emotional impact any word meant to me in that whole season. Three words. From a guy I didn't know that well. But I knew he knew. No one like mom. And just bawled with me. I just bawled, you know. The last section I have is on words that build to exhort the straying. And I think what I'll do is I will wait because that really connects well with confrontation, <clears throat> conflict for next time. <clears throat> Lord willing, we're prepared for that next time. So we'll, we'll, we'll meld that in. And I think we'll just leave here. But so we'll stick with two points today that we want to use our words to affirm to one another Jesus will finish what he started with you. To look each other in the eye and say, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of garbage going on. A lot of struggle, maybe even between us. But can I just tell you that Jesus is going to finish what he started in you? Like, we just pray in a moment that God would just help us to do that more with each other and with those who know Christ around us, that we would we'd be more aware of the opportunity we have this great privilege to look our brother and sister in the eye and say, Jesus is not going to leave you. You're not going to be damned. You're his child. You're not going to go to judgment before him. He's going to be faithful to complete the work he started in you. You've come to his son. The world will be judged for rejecting Christ. That's not where you are. 
We got stuff to work out. But we're going to make it. You're going to make it. To be able to say that to each other. It's, what a gift. And, and then secondly, to know how to use our words in suffering to grow and being able to be prepared to do that apt work of caring for those and comforting those, not smothering them 